0: Welcome to Literary Life, I'm Mitchell Kaplan. Today, we're presenting Ian Rankin, the great Scottish writer, who's written a new novel called In a House of Lies, with his signature character, Rebus. Uh, Ian is going to be in conversation with David Lewand. David is an uber-fan of Ian Rankin, and he flew in to Miami from Boston just for this event. The podcast will be the conversation in front of a live audience. It's something different for us, and it's something I hope you'll really enjoy. Tonight we've got Ian Rankin. He's the dean of Scottish detective fiction, the creator of what I've heard called Tartan Noir, (laughs) and a very observant chronicler of life in Edinburgh. He's won an Edgar Award for Best Novel, Uh, for Resurrection Man, too many other awards really to list in this short period of time. I did notice that he won an award from a Spanish publisher in 2016 with an award of 125,000 euros, which is apparently the uh, biggest prize for mystery fiction in the world. Uh, He's an officer of the British Empire, fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and the Royal Society of Edinburgh, uh, a deputy lieutenant for Edinburgh. And his most recent Rebus novel is in A House of Lies. And if I can just give you a short precy of it. Uh, in February 2017, some schoolboys find an abandoned car hidden in a ravine in a forest. There's a skeleton in the trunk. The victim has been missing since 2006. John Rebus, though he's retired, is able to push his way into the investigation because he worked on the missing persons investigation. Uh, But the forest had been thoroughly searched in 2006, and they find that there are police handcuffs around the ankles of the victim. John Rebus, I imagine most of you know about him. You can usually find him at the Oxford bar, (laughs) drinking a whiskey and a pint, smoking too many cigarettes, though he says he's quit now. He's uh, never sweet talks someone when he can say a harsh word and he's completely unable to follow police procedure. He's only able to uh, solve crimes. So he'll never, he never really went anywhere in the police force. So may I introduce Ian Rankin.
1: I don't know how I can live up to that. I'll do my best. I'm sure you'll do fine.
0: Uh, my first question is, now that Rebus is retired and he has COPD, <laughs> um, he's approximately 70 years old, I guess, how's he going to be able to continue investigating
1: uh, cases? Well, you're, you're correct. I gave myself a big problem with Rebus. I decided he would, be, he would live in real time, more or less an approximation of real time. Each book would be a year of his life. Um, and in the first book, I made him 40. So, in, yeah, that was so that became an issue fairly early on in the series when a friend of mine who's a cop got in touch and said, How old is Rebus? I said, He's 58, 59. Why? He said, He's got to retire at 60. That's a mandatory retirement age for detectives in Scotland. So then at the end of Exit Music, the 17th book, he did retire. I brought him back, saw him working on cold cases um, for the police as a civilian. Then he came back into the police force for a short time. Now he's retired again. After Exit Music, I stopped writing about him for five years. Right. I have chalked those off. So those five years don't exist in Rebus's life. Ah, So he's, so 65. he's about 65. <laughs> he's mid-60s. He's mid-60s. We'll write that down. Yeah. Um, and then a couple of years, a couple of books ago, a couple of years ago, my wife said, look, this, Rebus is a far too easy a ride health-wise. He smokes, he drinks alcohol, he eats fried food, and too much of it, he takes no exercise. Surely his luck has to run out. So she sat me down with a friend of hers who's a GP in Edinburgh, a a, a doctor, and I said, what would you expect Rebus to present if he walked into your uh, uh, surgery? And she then listed some gruesome, gruesome diseases he could have. And we settled on COPD for various reasons. Number one, it is manageable in inverted commas. If he makes some lifestyle changes, that can be very helpful to him. Number two, it has the word cop in it. Yes. And I just love the fact that he's got a disease that has the word cop in it. Um, But in this book, for example, you know, he sees a flight of stairs, his heart sinks. He doesn't want, if it's more than one flight of stairs, he's not sure he can make it. He actually lives in a tenement in Edinburgh and he's two stories up, two flights of stairs up. And I phoned up a friend of mine who's got COPD, another writer who lives in England. I said, you know, how's Reba's going to be coping? He said, really, not well. Uh, he said he's going to want to move into a bungalow or a ground floor apartment. So will he finally sell out? I think, I think he's going to payment? have to. Okay. I mean, I think if the series is going to remain realistic, he's going to have to. He's now getting more exercise than ever because I gave him a dog. Uh, yes. That was, that was a huge mistake. Um, I gave him a dog a couple of books ago. It was a book called Even Dogs in the Wild. And I thought, maybe I should put a dog in this book. Um, so it's a stray dog and Rebus takes it home and then tries to lay it off on anybody and everybody. And nobody wants the dog. So he stuck with it. I came time to write the next book, uh, Rather Be the Devil. And 50, 60 pages in, my wife said, where's the dog? <laughs> and uh, I, had, I had completely forgotten that I'd given him a dog in a previous book. So I had to go back and put that. And then in this book, when I gave her the, the latest book, the manuscript to look at, all her marginalia, all the notes in the margin just said, shouldn't Rebus be feeding the dog now? <laughs> you know, if he's going to go to that part of town to do some interviews, couldn't he take the dog with him and take it for a walk? I thought you worked the dog in very well. Yeah, but, you know, under sufferance, man. I, you know, the reason, that, the reason that a lot of detectives in fiction have no family life, no, nobody who, you know, they don't need to leave the, the case to go and take the kid to hospital or take the kid to the dentist or go to the basketball game or go away on a family vacation. The readers don't want them doing that. The readers want them completely focused on the case. And Rebus has been a loner, no ties for a long time. Suddenly he's got ties. So if I want to take him up to the very far north of Scotland, I have to think, OK, what happens to the dog?
0: Speaking of... Can't kill
1: it. (laughs) Cannot kill it. You don't have to... The, the can dog kill could as many die she-
0: from other for uh, other reasons. Yeah, no, but.
1: once you know, you can't. No, 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 no. Once once as a pet, there's always going to be that pet.
0: And um, Siobhan Clark, she's also getting up in in age. Uh, she ever going to get promoted?
1: <laughs> again?
0: <laughs> well, she or is was it tougher to
1: write that way. She's been promoted once in the series, right. um, up to Detective Inspector. Now yeah. again, there's a problem with, with, with credibility. Once you go above that pay grade, you're mostly just pushing paper around right. the desk. You're an Yeah. So you're kind of inspector morses of this world who are detective chief inspectors would be in charge of cases. They would be running people from the office. Right. They would not be out knocking on doors, sitting down, doing interviews. And that's why Rebus never rose above detective inspector. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm having some fun at the moment with Siobhan, who's a DI, and Malcolm Fox, who's also a DI. But he's a kind of suck up guy who would easily get promotion and she can't do that. She can't play the game. She can't play the game of sucking up to the people higher up than her to get promotion. So I think she's a little bit annoyed that he's moved to the, the big league, as it were, by getting moved to police headquarters, this right. new brand new shiny police HQ um, in central Scotland. Uh, and she's still stuck in the same old police station doing much the same thing as she always did. So there's a little bit of niggle there. I like that. I like the fact that these characters change before my eyes and each book, they've moved on, their lives have moved on. Yes, And that keeps it fresh for me. I mean, it's a challenge in some ways, but it does keep it fresh and it keeps me on my toes. So is that a, one reason that it looked like Inspector
0: Fox and Inspector Clark might get together, but it's pretty obvious now that they're not
1: going to. In fact, yeah, it's, I, yeah, she's made know. it quite specific. I think that would be that would be an ugly scenario. Oh, yes. Uh, I mean, I, years ago, fans would say, oh, when are Rebus and Siobhan Clark going to get into bed? Oh, and I'm like, dear God, no, yes. no, no, no. I mean, he's old enough to be our father. And um, it might happen in movies, but it tends not to happen so much in real, well, it does happen in real life, but not to any cops that I know. Um, but I just thought, no, it'd be terrible for their working relationship, terrible yes. for their friendship. Um, It would be the end of that. So no, that's not going to happen. Siobhan and Malcolm, I thought, well, maybe, you know, um, Malcolm's now got a kind of someone he's interested in in a new book and that might go places. I don't know. I don't know until I start the next book where their lives will have moved to. And similarly, her, she seems to be interested in the new chief inspector. Sutherland. Yeah, but he won't stick around long. I mean, what's happened is they've changed the nature of how the police operate in Scotland. There used to be eight police forces. So Edinburgh, Lothian and Borders, was its own police force. There were seven others in Scotland. People like Siobhan Clark, Rebus when he was a detective, could be in charge of murder inquiries. They've now blended all the eight forces, the regional forces, into one overarching thing called Police Scotland, and they've created this this, um, major incident team who are parachuted in to wherever a crime, a major crime has happened. So in Edinburgh, there's one police station, Leith Police Station, that has one room that's kept locked, that's only opened up when the MIT arrive. And that's for their use. So again, that, there's opportunities there for me because suddenly you've got tension between the local cops like Siobhan and these incomers who don't really know the city, they don't know the procedure, they don't know what they're up against. And you've got Potential for humour again because of misunderstandings, cultural misunderstandings. Because these people don't know the layout, they don't know the city, they don't know how to pronounce street names, for example. Um, so there's all of that, but it means that someone like Sutherland would come into Edinburgh, do the job, and then leave. Oh, he's going to leave. I mean, well, he's based in Glasgow. I think he lives okay. in Glasgow. So I'm asking you. I don't know. I don't. Uh, <laughs> I wrote. I wrote this book. Uh, I wrote this book a long time ago. I know. And and I've been on tour in the states for a long time, and it's all starting to get a little bit blurry. It's
0: Scotland's not that large. I guess they could still see each other. Oh, yeah It yeah, might yeah, even yeah. be
1: easier if they weren't working in the same area Sure, sure. And it's like uh, rebus with with, with his, um, his his girlfriend uh, kind of friends with uh, with benefits uh, Situation with Deborah Kwan the pathologist yes. who works in Edinburgh I've given rebus nice women down the years, but my wife's never liked any of them So none of them have lasted very long. Well, um. but he manages to alienate them all yeah. yeah, But, you know, but I think that Deborah Kwan's good. I think their relationship is interesting. And again, I think it's quite believable. You know, they're not going to move in together. They're too long in a tooth for that. They just like hooking up occasionally, sitting, watching a movie, going out for a meal, maybe staying over, maybe not. It's Again, it's frustrating for Rebus because she doesn't want the dog staying over. <laughs> uh, she's got a nice new apartment. She doesn't want any dog hair on the carpets. So, so that can That yeah, that puts a little dent in Rebus's love life right there. But she's agreeable to having him leave the dog at his place, walk the dog, and then come back. Sure. So yeah, that was good. Um, so you see that crime fiction isn't just about the plot, right? It's not. It's not just about the mystery. There are always other elements that I think make make it a much richer experience. You know. So you, as you were saying, you don't know if uh, oh, sorry, if uh, Fox
0: is going to continue a relationship or develop a relationship with uh this new woman new police woman in the in this one. Um is he gonna do you think he's gonna go back to the crime campus, to, to his central headquarters and hope to get sounds like he's hoping for a promotion himself.
1: Yeah. I mean at the start of this book, um we see Malcolm Fox at this thing um called Gart Kosh. It used to be it's the site of a steel mill the steel mill got shut down and eventually they built this brand, brand new shiny crime campus. And it's where the the serious crime and fraud unit and anti-terrorist and stuff like that, the top cops are the serious stuff's all getting done there. And so he's got his feet under the desk there. And in real life, the, um, the chief of police um, has been changing pretty much every year. They all have to go off on what we call gardening leave <laughs> because they've been found, uh, or there's been alleged malfeasance or negligence or corruption or whatever. So we lost a few of them in quick succession. Um, So at the start of this book, there's a kind of jokey reference that if Malcolm sticks around long enough, he might be in charge before long because there's going to be nobody else left. Um, Not the present chief of police in Scotland, but the one before, when he took over, he gathered together as many Scottish crime writers as he could for dinner (laughs) um, to apologize to us that he was making our jobs difficult by changing the way that murders are investigated in Scotland, knowing that we would have to try and explain all this to our readers without boring you to tears with bureaucracy. Um, and it was quite funny. He wasn't just doing it for that. He was doing it because I think he could see that, you know, that um, the, the novelists were taking, were taking um, you know, Scottish life to the world. So it was in his interest for us to get the facts right um, and to have us on side, as it were. Um, but yeah, we're saying him, it's a real pain, you know, because someone like Siobhan Clark isn't going to be never going to be in charge of a murder inquiry unless she gets becomes part of the MIT at some point. And if she did that, she would probably have to leave Edinburgh. So right. I don't know. I, I really don't know. Between books, I don't think too much about it. Yeah, I, don't, I really don't. You know, I mean, this book started life as a clipping in a magazine. There's a news magazine in, in the UK called Private Eye. It's like quite scurrilous, but it's also got good investigative journalism and jokes and stuff and cartoons. And it was a little clipping of a, about a private detective who'd gone missing 30 years ago. No, he hadn't gone missing. 30 years ago in England, in London, he had been investigating alleged links. You're a lawyer, so I need to put in the word alleged. <laughs> alleged links uh, between senior police officers and organised crime. And he was found hacked to death in a pub car park. Now, Private Eye, the magazine, keep bringing this story up again because nobody was ever satisfactorily prosecuted for it. And I thought, I just thought, that's interesting. I've never really dealt with private detectives. There's not much of a culture of private detectives in UK crime fiction. Right. It's like we don't believe in, in characters the way that an American audience believes in the Private Eye as a character. Um, and yet, bizarrely, we believe in spinsters and titled gentlemen solving crimes. Go figure, you know. Um, you know. Uh, but... Um, but that just oh, yeah. that was what was what started it. And I, and I thought, okay. And I just saw the scene straight away. Some kids are playing in a forest. There's a gully. One of them goes into the gully. There's a car covered up with kind of weeds and stuff and bushes. And in the back of the car in the trunk is, is a skeleton of this guy, a private detective who disappeared 10 years before, who was investigating sort of corrupt business people in Edinburgh. So at that point, the book could have been the story of those kids. Yes. Mm. You know? Um, at that point, because the body's found, so then it becomes a live murder inquiry, it becomes a story for the MIT and possibly for Siobhan, who's the local um, cop who's, right. who's seconded to that team. But then I thought, hang on a minute, 10 years ago, this would have been a missing persons case. The police now will be wondering, were mistakes made? Uh, were there, was there a cover-up? Why was this body never found? Were the cops back then lazy? So there will also be an investigation of the original inquiry. Oh, Rebus was a cop 10 years ago. It would be interesting if he was suddenly under suspicion of having been um, not doing his job properly or covering up for other cops who weren't doing their job properly. So it sort of very quickly evolved from being a story about kids finding a body to being a story about Rebus and Siobhan. And then I found a way to bring Malcolm Fox in as well and Cafferty the gangster. I always love it when Cafferty walks into a scene. Yeah. Uh, Just now in the UK, there's a Rebus um, play on tour, a drama, stage drama, uh, that I co-wrote with a playwright called Rona Monroe. And it's Cafferty, Rebus and Siobhan Clark on stage. And it's, oh. it is uh, astonishing. The guy playing Cafferty, he's an actor called John Stahl. He was in Game of Thrones until he was killed off, like everybody in Game of Thrones. <laughs> uh, but he's, he's a brilliantly um, charismatic, charming monster. Uh, when, he walked, when I saw it in Edinburgh, my wife saw it with me, and he walked, when he walked, I'd seen it before. I, seen, I, seen, I saw the opening night in Birmingham in England. When he walked on stage, my wife gripped my arm because there was that terror. This guy was so menacing when he walked on and yet charismatic at the same time. Um, uh, so yeah, Cafferty, I love writing about. And the problem I've got is when he and Rebus are on the page together, they suck all the oxygen from the page. There's no, the other characters are struggling to get noticed. People like Siobhan Clark, Malcolm Fox struggle to be noticed when it's just Rebus and Cafferty. Um, but they are brilliant characters to write about. Um. So you just told us how you got
0: the plot for this one, this book. And as we were talking about before, do you think Rebus is going to ha- could have any role in the investigation of the former First Minister, which oh, was Lord. also well, under... Uh, I don't know how... I don't, I don't, he's yeah, indicted for I, sexual assault? I, I uh, yeah, I don't,
1: I don't know how much you, you, you know about that. Um, <laughs> our previous First Minister, Alex Salmond, um, who's, he, he took Scotland as close as it's ever got to independence... When, when the campaign for independence started, there was about 30% support and he got up to 45 um, So it lo- he lost 55-45 and he immediately resigned as first minister um, and went off to work for Russia Today um, <laughs> as a chat show host. Uh, anyway, yeah, some women have come forward and said that um, uh, several many years ago uh, he committed sexual assault and so he is now under police investigation for that. Um, but there was an internal investigation well, as well. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 there's now an investigation into the current First Minister, um, uh, Nicola Sturgeon, because she had meetings and phone calls with him, um, and she probably shouldn't have been doing that when he was suspected of having committed sexual assault. And there was also someone who was involved in the
0: internal investigation who had been one of the peop- persons who are uh, requested got these people to come forward.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's all very convoluted and, and messy. Um, and, you know, I mean, in Scotland, we like to think we do things differently from the from the UK as a whole. We think do things differently from Westminster. Uh, and we've got a cleaner parliament. I think we have got a fairly clean parliament. But just now and again, because it is a fairly clean parliament, when something like that crops up, it does get a lot of currency. Uh, but it has been investigated. It probably is sub judice, and probably we shouldn't say too much about it now. <laughs> well, we're not in... Yeah, I know, but we've got a podcast here, man. We've got a podcast here. People around the world can hear it. I mean, I was asked to write about it for an English magazine spectator uh, in their latest issue, and I said I just started off the the article by saying, look, I can't say too much about this. But, um, I mean, the case I made in that article was, it is just a, a continuing example of the fact that novelists are in trouble. Because we can't make this stuff up. I, how 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 could I possibly make that credible? How could I make him a credible character? You know, someone who was leader of his party, leader of the country, takes a country near to independence, loses, goes to work for Russia today and then gets done for, you know, gets uh, accused of sexual assault. Uh, and, you know, in the UK, we can't look at the States and say, you're in a mess because we're in a mess as well. Everybody's in a, everybody, everywhere is in a mess. And whenever writers get together, we always say the same thing. We couldn't make this stuff up. Well, I noticed when you did the book with the
0: chief, uh, head civil servant of the Scottish office being corrupt and all the uh, developers and the like. You ended it by having Rebus take the, take it to the uh, head of the Scottish office, but you didn't go further. Right. Because yeah. who knows what would have happened.
1: Yeah, I like open endings. Um, in fact, that's a weird one, that particular book, uh, Let It Bleed, I believe it was. Um, it's a weird one because in America, my editor said to me, look, it's a very open ending. Uh, mystery readers like closure. So I did an extra chapter to the American edition that explains a little bit of what happened in the office. Uh, But not in the UK edition. In the UK edition, Rebus just walks into a room with all this damning information and you never find out what happened as a result. I like open endings. I mean, the real world isn't cut and dried, you know. And I I mean, you know, most of the loose ends of my books are tied up, but I like to leave a few ends straggling to give you a sense that, you know, this stuff hasn't gone away and there's maybe room for further developments in the story later on as well. Where do you think Rebus would stand on
0: a second uh, independence referendum if there's a hard Brexit? Man. I know he, was, he voted against the first one.
1: Yeah. Well, you know what? He likes the status quo. He fears change. He doesn't like change. Um, I, he would probably vote no again, I would have thought. I mean, I was asked that a lot during the first independence referendum, and I said, look, I'll tell you how my characters would vote. Rebus would vote no. Siobhan would vote yes. And Malcolm Fox would wait until the final seconds to make up his mind. <laughs> Uh, I said, if you, if you put those in a blender, you'll get me. Why did you merge the complaints books with the Rebus series? Again, it was organic. You know, it was just, I, there's never been a, you know, when I wrote the first Rebus book, I thought that was it. I thought there was only ever going to be one book with this guy. I killed him at the end of the first draft of the first book. And then I, and I went and wrote spy novels and thrillers. And then my editor said, "What well, i to that guy Rebus. I liked him. And by that stage, I thought, yeah, I liked him as well. And a detective I had discovered is a very good way of looking at a society from top to bottom. And I wanted to write about Edinburgh and Scotland. You know, Edinburgh is a microcosm for Scotland. Right. And I thought, well, Rebus is as good a way of doing that as any. He can be talking to the CEOs and the politicians one minute, the dispossessed, and disenfranchised the next. So as long as he's useful to me and the kinds of books I want to write are those kinds of books... I'll, I'll keep going with him. And then he had to retire. And then when I brought him back, um, I, you know, between him retiring and bringing him back, I'd invented Malcolm Fox. Right. My wife said to me, when the final Rebus book is, is written, Exit Music, she said, great, you can write about anything you want. You're free. What do you want to do? I said, well, I quite like to write about cops in Edinburgh. <laughs> and so... Uh, so And I didn't want people to think they were getting Rebus Light or Rebus 2.0. So Fox is a very different character. Yes. And that first one that complains, he follows the rules, he's cautious, he's careful, he doesn't, try, he doesn't like getting in trouble, doesn't like bending the rules at all, um, which makes him quite boring, right? We like our mavericks. We like our dangerous, dark mavericks. And the, the challenge for me was to make him a character you cared about. Right. And by the end of that book, I did care about him, so I brought him back again for a second book. Then I got an idea for a book about a cold case unit. And I thought, well, that's what Rebus is doing. He's not going to go gentle into that good night. He's not going to go and open a bed and breakfast or an Airbnb. He's not going to drive an Uber. You know, as a civilian, he would have begged them to let him back in to work on the cold case unit. So an idea for a cold case. There's Rebus available to me. So he comes back. And I thought, well, hang on. There's one person who wouldn't want Rebus back in the police or someone like Rebus back in the police. And that's Malcolm Fox. And, you know, Rebus has been meat and drink to the internal affairs his whole career. Um, so I brought, I brought Fox into that book as an antagonist. And in, few, and in books after that, he was a little bit less of an antagonist. There's, a, there's an empathy, a sympathy, a relationship that's been forming over the past few books. Fox knows he could never be a cop like Rebus. You know, he would love to be a man of action. He's tried it and it doesn't work for him. You know, he is best suited to being in a, an office running things. Writing up a plan for the major crimes unit. Yeah, or doing costings, you know? The thing that you don't often get in crime fiction, right, is the fact when you sit down with stuff, A, if you want DNA analysis in the UK, it can take weeks. So Forget your CSI programs. It can take weeks, if not months, and you might not be able to afford it. You know, I mean, in this book, there's some soil analysis that we'd like to get done on some tires for, from the, the detectives, the private detective's car. And they're going, well, A, do we know anybody that can do it? B, how long will it take? And C, can we afford to get it done?
0: That's something I, when I was a prosecutor, I never noticed they never gave us a budget for an investigation. Mm-hmm. So we would just go out and do what needed to be done. But I do know that Rebus always seems to get the police laboratory to put his requests at the top.
1: Yeah, if you can because I want to speed the process exactly. up. I don't want us to have to wait 3 months for him to get the uh the results back, and you know. Mi- and meanwhile. Uh, yes. Yeah, I mean I love it In I I love it. I mean in some books and also on TV and film they go, yeah, I've got those results for you. You go, "What? That was like 10 minutes ago they asked for them." <laughs> hey, how much did that cost? You know. Uh I love all that. And I'd got to know a, a, a forensic um scientist who specializes in soil samples. Um and she told me she said you can give me a soil sample and you know, give me a few weeks and I'll be able to tell you where it's from within about a half mile radius. Amazing. Anywhere in the UK. And she's starting, her database is getting wider and wider. I mean, the stuff that's happening in technology now is so extraordinary that that crime writers are finding it hard to keep up. Yes. And so we need to keep talking to professionals. Um, There's another really great forensic um, anthropologist um, who I've I've done events with. And she did this thing. She she, um, started this program where... I mean, this is a hard subject to talk about. I'll I'll, I'll keep it as brief as I can. Child child abuse, when they're sharing images on the internet, often the only bit of the abuser you see is the hand, the back of the hand. She discovered that the backs of our hands are unique. The vein patterns, the lines, everything, it's like a fingerprint. And so she started putting together a database. She said, if you can get me a suspect and give me a photograph of their hand, I can match it. Like you would do with a fingerprint, 14 points, of similarity, and I can prove that's that person's hand in that photograph. And the first time she tried it, she didn't, she wasn't successful, but she's built up and built up the case and built up the um, the, the, the database such that now she's getting good results from it. Well, defense
0: lawyers in this country are, are very happy to tell you that no one's ever proved that no, no two people have the same fingerprints. Yeah.
1: But it's, I mean, I guess it's the weight of, you know, the weight of all available ev- evidence and that's right. part of the story. Because we still haven't found any, any two people yeah. who have them. Yeah. I yeah. mean, people say that DNA, you know, DNA is, it's not an exact science. Um, but when you get a, a, a jury in a courtroom and you put some science, what seems to be science in front of them, to go, yeah, I believe that. Oh yeah, I believe that. Well, you
0: say there's a, only a one in 250 million chance that this isn't the same person whose DNA was found at the crime scene. And they go, oh, yeah. who knows if that's true? I mean, it's, it's tough. <laughs> in most, most crime novels, it's a, you, have a, you end up with a sort of a convoluted plot. You never really want to have the original suspect, the obvious suspect, to, be, to do it. But in exit music, you went all around and you had. I hope I'm not spoiling this for anyone. Oh. Ah. I can't can't remember. I've got to put my fingers in my
1: ears now because I can't remember. Well, you didn't, yes. Uh, But yeah. No, uh, you know what? I do. uh, Yeah. I mean, there are are things about the the mystery novel that frustrate me. You know, this having to lead the reader astray frustrates me. There was one book I wrote, um, A Question of Blood, I think it was, um, where right from the start, we know who the killer was and what they did. We just don't know why. Right. And I thought that was it. I thought this is a why done it. Um, But when I started writing the book, the book said to me, no, actually, it wasn't him. (laughs) You know, all the available evidence points to him, but it wasn't him. And I thought, oh, okay. well, who was it then? And I waited for the book to tell me. When I start these novels, I never know. When I started this book, I didn't know who killed the private detective or why. Right. I had no idea. And it was about two thirds of the way through the first draft before I started to put it together. So when I start writing the book, I know as little as the detectives. And the first draft is me being the detective Piecing together how everybody fits, how that person connects to that person, how that incident might be related to it and where it all might be going. And people say, no, surely you must retrofit a mystery novel. You start with a solution and you work backwards, almost like you've got a crossword grid. You fill it in with the answers, then you think up the clues. But very many of us don't work that way. We, you know, we make it up as we go. Mark Twain said that about writing a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court.
0: He said, I had one idea to write it. And then as I was writing it, the book changed.
1: And I love that. I mean, I just love the fact that the book will have a better idea where it wants to go than I do. And usually a much more interesting idea as well. And there, there have been times, there was one time that I, I plotted a book, it wasn't a Rebus novel, and it was a long time ago, but I plotted a book in such detail, I was completely satisfied with the synopsis of this book. When I sat down to write it, I found I didn't need to write the book. Because I knew, what, I knew, right. I knew it was going to happen. I knew it was going to happen. So, that um, synopsis has now just gone into the National Library of Scotland. Uh, oh. Well, I, I'm, I'm downsizing. After 50-odd after years of upsizing, I'm downsizing. We're moving into a three-bedroom. We're moving into Cafferty's penthouse apartment, bizarrely. Oh. Yeah, Is he it's bizarre. He's not going to be there, I hope. Well, who knows? Uh, he might be in the one next door. Um, at the moment, I live in the house that Cafferty lived in until he moved to the penthouse apartment. It's kind of weird. I'm sure a psychoanalyst could do a lot with the fact that Rebus lives in the street. I lived in when I was an impoverished student. And Caffrey, he lives in the house I live in now. Anyway, okay. um, what was I talking about? Yeah, we're downsizing. So, yes. I, had to, so I, I asked the National Library of Scotland if they wanted my archive. Um, and they said, yeah. So I had to go through all my paperwork. And it was an extraordinary uh, process. I was finding manuscripts for things I don't remember writing. Uh, a TV comedy set in a supermarket. I've got no memory. it's like 30, 40 pages of script. No memory of writing it early attempts at me writing a a TV Rebus adaptation that went nowhere, Um, and this book called Sabbath Child, the synopsis, full synopsis for a book called Sabbath Child that I never felt the need to write because the synopsis was too good. Um, But the weird thing um, about all that is that also included in that archive is all my correspondence. And I'm probably the last generation of writers who will have an archive of actual physical correspondence, not tweets and emails, but physical letters that I used to send to people and people used to send to me. And when I was putting it together, I noticed that almost every writer I used to correspond with is now deceased. It was oh Ruth Ruth Rendell, mm-hmm. P.D. James, uh, Reginald Hill, Colin Dexter, Ian Banks, Philip Kerr, uh, yeah. Michael Dibden, I could go on. And so there's this correspondence that's gone to the National Library of Scotland and I just thought, good God. All these, all my friends are dead. Some of your friends. Yeah, I know. But I, I just it was so weird that so many of them have gone. And, and I'd forgotten how many letters I used to I used to live in France. When I first got married, we moved to rural France. And we had no internet. There was no internet back then and no cell phones. And phone calls were very expensive. And you kept in touch by writing letters. Um, and people wrote letters back. And Ian Banks had forgotten how many letters we wrote to each other. And it was dozens. Uh and, and it was it was staggering when I, when I realised how how much of correspondence there was there. In fact, because because the author lives in Miami, I'll tell you the story very quickly. One of the letters I'd written from France to say, "Hey, isn't TrainSpotting great?" Right, Irvin Welsh lives in Miami. Um, isn't TrainSpotting great? And Ian Banks, who lived in just outside Edinburgh, said, "P.S. Who's Irvin Welsh?" <laughs> so I knew about TrainSpotting living in rural France before Ian Banks did, which is kind of weird. Yes. Uh, you, know, you mentioned that rebus there's a play that's
0: on now and i know that there have been television series uh is there are there going to be any more is there any talk about ever, a film perhaps <clears throat> i don't think that they've put the uh television series on over here
1: oh the bits and pieces yeah bbc america or whatever i mean it was it was shown yeah. in bits and pieces uh they had um they did one c- series with an actor called john hanna playing rebus fans thought he was a little bit too young at the time um and, but those were two hour films. Um, then he took it down to one hour and got a new actor in called Ken Stott. I yes. did not like the format. I didn't like it being one hour per book. Per book? Which is, yeah, which ah. is 45 minutes per book. So they just basically threw everything away except the title. Yes. And made up, yeah. I never watched it. I've never watched an episode, but my wife would watch it and say, look, they've kept a the title of Knots and Crosses, but it's a completely different storyline. Um, so I got the rights back I didn't like that. And last year, a TV company got in touch with me again and said, look, we would like to do it properly. We'd like to do it long form. We appreciate now an audience is there for long form television that we never used to think was there. We'd like to do eight or 10 hours. Um, and they got a really good screenwriter in. He's a, a film screenwriter and also a playwright. Um, and he's done a two-hour pilot. Uh, and it's great. I mean, it reads great. And it's now with the BBC and we're just waiting to hear. And if the BBC don't take it, then it goes to Netflix or Sky or, or Amazon. Who knows? Who knows? So who knows? So maybe next year we'll have something. And what, hopefully it'll be truer to the books than the original TV shows were. One last question. What is Rebus listening to these days? Uh, you know, Rebus hasn't bought an album since about 1975, I don't think. But he, uh, he does
0: get gifts. <laughs>
1: Yeah, he goes. He occasionally goes. I mean, he does buy albums. He would. Yes. He would have bought the new Van Morrison album. He would listen. course. To. He would have bought the Last Stone's album. He probably went to see the Stones last summer in Murrayfield Stadium in Edinburgh, balking at the hundred and fifty pound price of a ticket, uh, as did I. And um, <laughs> and I was so far from the stage, I might as well have stayed at home. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, he's still listening to the same, he listens to Rory Gallagher, he listens to blues stuff. He, I'll tell you why he does that. There's two reasons why Rebus listens to a lot of music. Number one, I'm a music fan. Yes. And like most mystery writers I know, I would rather be a, a rock star than an author. But I was no good. I tried it once when I was 18 and I wasn't much good at it. Um, so Rebus listens to a lot of music so that vicariously my music can get into the you know, get out there. And that's meant that musicians have become fans of the books. And I've got to meet musicians and work with them. And it's been I've got to work with Van Morrison. It's been absolutely fantastic. Oh I've met all the Stones. Um, it's been great, all because of Rebus loving music. Um, but also, I think it delineates character. Here's the thing. If you're new to the Rebus series and you open it up, and here's this guy sitting in his apartment late at night with a glass of malt whiskey, and he's listening to Van Morrison, Leonard Cohen, Early Stones, Rory Gell. You start to get a sense of his age his social background, he's not a party animal, he's a bit of a loner, he's solipsistic maybe. You get all that just from, from his musical choices. So it's showing, not telling, yes. which takes us back to one of the kind of central tenets of creative writing classes, classes I've never been to. Yeah. <laughs> But now you're teaching them, aren't you? No, I did a very short stint teaching. I was a visiting professor of creative writing at the University of East Anglia uh, in, uh, in England. And the reason I took it up was because that was the first, and it is the most prestigious creative writing course in the UK. And the very first student was Ian McEwan. Oh. Uh, and he okay. was the only student the first year. And very <laughs> shortly after him came Kazu Ishiguro. Oh. So, yeah. Um, but you know, when I sat those students down one-on-one for a tutorial, I said, look, I really can't, I can't teach you how to write. If you've got a passion and if you get stuff down on paper, I can maybe help you edit or, or think about where you go next with it. But I said, the one thing I would ask you to do is don't think of it as an academic pursuit. Try and recapture the you who in your childhood bedroom or whatever sat and played make-believe games and made up stories and played role-playing games. And created universes and alternate histories inside your head, because that's what writers keep doing. We're just kids who refuse to grow up.
0: Well, thank you very much. You've just heard Ian Rankin, who discussed his new book, In a House of Lies, among many, many other things, with David Lewand here at Books and Books in front of a live audience. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I hope you'll join us next week for a new episode of The Literary Life.